Please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. As you do, I want you to imagine that you are shopping in your favorite grocery store. And while you're shopping there, you see a wild man come in, and this man begins yelling and climbing on the stand that holds all the watermelons. And as he climbs up that display, he begins screaming that he is the new king of England. The queen is dead. I am now in charge. I can do what I want. Well, now imagine that he starts throwing these watermelons all over the place and shattering them and laughing maniacally as he does. Of course, what's going to take place is the police are going to come and they are going to arrest that man and they are going to take him away where he can find help. But as they take him away, he might continue screaming, I am the king, I am in charge, I can do whatever I want. Now, by nature of the fact that he is being cuffed and arrested and forcibly removed from the building, it reveals the fact that he is not, in fact, in charge, and he cannot, in fact, do whatever he wants, regardless of whether or not he is the king of England. He will be put in check by the power and authority and will of society and the officials who enforce its laws. The Rolling Stones actually got it right when they said, you can't always get what you want. And they would also have been correct if they would have said, you can't always do what you want. Normally, the way that we approach a sermon here at Gateway is to preach exegetically. And by that, I simply mean that we start at the beginning of a book, and we make our way methodically through the book, looking at every verse week by week. And when we do that, we make the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. So it's not that the pastor gets to have his own way with deciding whatever it is that he desires to teach. The word directs that. And there are many reasons why that is the best regular diet for the local church. However, there are occasions when needs arise to preach systematic sermons or a series of systematic sermons. For example, the church should know about the Trinity and be taught about the Trinity. However, there is no single passage No exclusive passage where the main point of the text is to explain the Trinity. The Trinity is taught in many places. It is in the background everywhere we look in the scripture. But in order to preach about it, the preacher must systematize those places to speak about the Trinity and make a case from the various parts of scripture instead of one single passage. And that is precisely what we are going to do for the next six weeks as we consider the doctrine of salvation. There will be six sermons explaining the biblical teaching of exactly what happens when somebody gets saved. This is called the doctrine of soteriology. And we are going to start where every good doctrine begins, with God himself. So today we are going to ask the question, can God do whatever he wants? Or to put it another way, is God sovereign? Let's pray. God, today as we come before your word, We ask that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand. In particular, God, I pray that as we have so often minimized who you are in our sight, I pray that you would magnify yourself today through your word, that you would reveal to us who you truly are, and that we would no longer shrink you down in our perspective. Help us to view you rightly, which is to view you sovereignly. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to keep your finger in Jonah chapter 2 today, but we're not going to make it there for quite a while. All of the other verses that you hear today should be on the screen for you, but we're going to move through a lot of the Bible pretty rapidly this morning. 
in order to answer the question, can God do whatever he wants, we're actually going to ask a variety of smaller questions and build to bigger and bigger aspects of God's control. But I'm going to ask you to help me out here today. I want you to stick with me, and I want you to do something where I will say something and you respond. Earlier, Wally read for us Psalm 115, 1 through 3, and you did a phenomenal job with it. Today, after each question, I am going to ask you, I'm going to say, rather, our God is in the heavens, and I'm going to ask you to respond with, he does whatever he pleases. Let's just try that out. Our God is in the heavens. He does. Amen. Let's begin with the very simplest creature and ask the question, does God control worms? I realize this is a simple starting point, but it's a good question. Because you know what? I can't control a worm. I can't keep the bugs that I want in my garden and the bugs I don't want out of my garden. I have no control over insects. I was just reading a biography about Laura Ingalls Wilder and how there were literally 25 trillion locusts that were in the largest locust swarm in history that she was experiencing in North Dakota. I can't control bugs. You can't control bugs. Can God control bugs? Consider Jonah chapter 4, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. What exactly is going on here? Clearly, God is the one who caused the worm to do what it did. He gave it an appointment. He told it to carry out a specific task. And he did that so that it would produce repentance on the part of one of his prophets. You and I do not get to control worms or insects, but God can. Because our God is in the heavens. Let's try again. Our God is in the heavens. You'll get a lot of chances. We'll make it sound good here. Let's make our way up, up the animal kingdom and consider my least favorite of the animal phylums, the birds. Now, I dislike birds because they tend to dislike me. When I was a kid of about eight years old, there was a, a bird, a large bird, that flew into one of our windows and broke its wing. And I, being a tender-hearted young child, wanted to assist the bird and try to nurse it back to health so that it someday could fly. I watched too many children's cartoons. So I went outside and attempted to gently pick it up, and as I did, it bit the fat part of my index finger and would not release. And so I was flailing around and trying to get it off, and the, the only way in which I could get it to remove itself from my hand was to actually smash it against my garage. And ever since that time, I think he told all of his friends, the birds and I have not gotten along. I can't control birds, and they, can't, they don't listen to me. But this is not so with God. In 1 Kings 17, 4, God said this to Elijah, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Do you know that in English, the word ravenous comes from the word raven? The word raven literally means to plunder, steal, or devour greedily. Those creatures, perhaps, are the most selfish creatures ever created by God. They do not share food, but they gave food away freely to feed Elijah when God commanded them to do so. They operated against their nature because God commanded them to so. I can't control the birds. You can't control the birds, but God can because our God is in the heavens. Let's move from the air to the water and consider the fish. Now, you know exactly where we're going. 
not just a small fish, not just a minnow, but Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. We have some fishermen in the room. I am not one of them. I cannot even convince a minnow to come onto my hook. But God doesn't take a small fish. He takes one large enough to house like a submarine, a human being for three days. That is because our God is in the heavens. Let's jump to the very top of the food chain, the king of the beasts himself. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. It says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. These lions... They would intentionally starve them so that when someone was thrown into a pit with these beasts, they would be rapidly and instantly consumed. And while Daniel spent the night in the most deadly sleepover in in history, they woke up the next day, opened that place, and found him alive. Why? Because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God can stop the lion's mouth. But there's something even more shocking about shutting the mouth of a lion, and that is opening the mouth of a donkey. Donkeys are historically used in most cultures to represent ignorance, foolishness, and stupidity. Yet in Numbers chapter 22, verse 28, it says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and he and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? There's a lot of things that would shock me in life. This would be close to the top if my pet started talking to me. But no matter how much I talk to my pet or you talk to yours, they will not talk back because you cannot make them speak. You cannot make them operate contrary to their nature. But our God can do that because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, I realize that so far this is a very simple sermon. And I doubt that there's any major pushback or controversy over what has been stated so far. This, to be honest, this is really just so far children's church level information, but let's jump out of the realm of the animal kingdom and into the realm of God's created natural order and then be amazed at God's power. Let me ask the question, does God control the weather? Psalm 148 verse 8 says, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. The weather industry is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Why? Because we all want to know what's going to happen. We want to know if there is going to be a hurricane coming our way. We can't control the weather, nor, apparently, can we even accurately predict it. Every year, fires and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis produce untold devastation to mankind. But according to Psalm 148, all of those things are fulfilling God's purposes. That means that they are each following the orders of their master. We see this in a very direct way when Jesus himself spoke to the wind and to the waters and said, Peace, be still. And they were. And all the disciples who were already terrified of the storm, they look at him and it says, And they were afraid. They're no longer afraid of the weather. They were afraid because the weather was done and there was someone in the boat that controlled it. God controls the weather. Why? Because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And does God control the sun and the moon? 
Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14 tells us, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Who actually stopped the sun? It wasn't Joshua. It was the Lord who fought for Israel that stopped the sun in its place and the moon in its place. Now, we could debate for a long time the cosmological implications of that. What exactly was taking place? Was the earth stalled in its orbit? Was the entire universe otherwise just put on pause for a day? Who knows exactly how God operated, but it's contrary to the way nature normally operates, and that occurred because God is capable and we are not. Consider the fact that these two things... The sun and the moon are probably the most worshipped objects ever created by God. Almost every pagan nation has chosen those two things and looked upon them and said, those are mighty and powerful objects that give source to our life. So we will worship them. Yet even these things that so many people have placed their hopes upon and worshipped with their hearts can do nothing but bow down when the God who made them begins to speak. Why? Because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. What about the great expanse of space beyond our solar system? I love looking at the photos from the Hubble telescope or the newer, greater telescopes that they are recently putting the photos out. It is phenomenal to see the depths of God's creation as we look into the far-flung reaches of the universe. Well, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth are all their host, Psalm 33, 6. How did they get there? God made them. Isaiah 45, 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all of their hosts. Or as Francesco quoted last week from Job chapter 38, verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Who is it that controls the stars? Who is it that manages them, operates them, that tells them where to go? The stars and the constellations are at the beckon and call of God who first made them. Though they are distant and they are enormous from our vantage point, they lay in the palm of our God. Because our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. But you might be thinking, this is not difficult for me to believe because these are inanimate objects. These are just like playthings in the toy box of God. He simply uses these things that have no will for his purposes. They don't have a mind. They can't reason with God or even think about denying his commands. Well, if that's true, let's move now to another category altogether and consider the angels. Angels are powerful beings. In fact, we read about in the Old Testament one single angel who came and killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's powerful Assyrian warriors in one night by himself. Angels are powerful beings. Every time they show up, the first thing they tend to say is, don't be afraid. 
And why is that? Because everyone is afraid when an angel shows up. Does God not control the angels? Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. What is it that the angels do? Whatever God tells them to do. Or what about Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which is comparing Christ to the angels, where he is saying, there is no comparison. These are nothing like him. And he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are? are to inherit salvation. Sent out to serve by whom? The clear answer is by God. And Jesus explained God's power over angels with this question in Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you realize that what he is saying there is if I just ask my Father to do this, he would immediately command and it implies they would immediately obey his command? They would be here in an instant if I asked. Why? Because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But not all of the angels have remained faithful to the Lord. I doubt anyone here has any problem with the fact that God controls the good angels. But what about the bad ones? What about demons? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord, tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. The demons hate God. They don't like his authority. However, when God commands one of them to go and do something like torment Saul, they have no choice but to obey. We see a really good picture of this in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 28 in the life of Christ. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, that is a demon. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's interesting because no one else there seemed to get who he was yet. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they do what? They obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The demons cannot refuse to obey his commands. He can tell them what to do, and they have to do it because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But I know that you might be asking yourself, well, okay, maybe he can command the demons to do things, but what about the fallen angel? What about Satan? What about the prince of darkness, the accuser, the deceiver, the devil himself? Well, perhaps the best place to get a good glimpse of God's power in this situation is to look at Job chapter 1. Let's start by looking at verses 6 through 8. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, 
Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Notice a few things here. First of all, what is Satan doing there? It says that they were there to present themselves to the Lord. God required their attendance. Satan doesn't just wander into God's meetings without invitation. He was purposefully drawn there because God was going to bring about the events that we see take place over the rest of this book. And notice that Satan does not have Job in his sights until God points him out. It isn't Satan who brings up Job. It's God. It's God who asks the question, Have you considered my servant Job? Well, why does Satan consider anybody? Why is he inspecting anyone? It's not to be their friend. It's to be their enemy. And he says, hey, have you thought about that guy? At first, God allowed Satan to destroy everything around Job, but not touch Job himself. Then the Lord let the leash out on Satan and allowed him to afflict Job with swords from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he had to give uh, Satan permission to do that to Job. Without that permission from God, Satan could not do anything. The entire book of Job is a setup by God to present his sovereignty over Satan and his sovereignty over suffering. Satan did his best to destroy Job's faith. He took his wealth, he took his health, he took his family, and he left him with nothing but a wife who tempted him by telling him to curse God and die, and friends who gave him very bad advice and theology. Satan is not a free agent. Unlike a lot of the dualism that we hear in especially the as we get more and more Eastern pantheistic monism influence here in the United States, Satan is not God's equal opposite. It is not a yin-yang situation. Satan is responsible to obey whatever God tells him. He is created under the authority of the king of all things. To borrow a line from John Piper, he says, God uses Satan to defeat the purposes of Satan. When Satan entered Judas, for example, he signed his own death warrant with the blood of Jesus. Satan still does things in accordance with his nature, but he cannot do anything unless God permits. And God permitted him to betray Christ. God permitted him to enter the mind of Judas. And in doing so, Satan signed his death warrant. God is not wringing his hands, wondering, what am I going to do about this Satan problem? It'd be easier for an ant to destroy Mount Everest than for Satan to either harm, hassle, or hinder God and his authority in any way. God has authority over all angelic beings, even the wicked ones, because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, let me rapid fire a few questions at you now. Let's just consider this to be a lightning round. Does God control life and death? Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hands. You are going to live exactly to the millisecond how long God wants you to live. Does God rule over the earthly wealth and over earthly economies? 
1 Samuel 7, uh, 1, 7 through 8. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Everyone talks about the economy these days. Who is ultimately in charge? It's not the Fed. It's not the federal government. It is God himself who brings wealth to nations. Does God rule over both triumph and tragedy in the life of the individual? Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Can God's plans ever be stopped, thwarted, hindered, or slowed down by any of us? Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Whatever God wants to do, he will do. Is there anything that God does not plan or actively work out? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what, who works what, all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, what about matters of chance and luck? Aren't there things that God doesn't plan that just happen? Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We think of dice as literally the symbol of chance. That's what we think of when we think of luck. But the Bible teaches us that behind every roll of the die in Las Vegas or in Atlantic City, there is a sovereign hand of God that is purposing the outcome. And he does that so that he might fulfill his grand plan of the universe. Or as R.C. Sproul says, there is not a single maverick molecule in the universe. Let me show you one example of how that worked itself out in a very specific way in the life of one of the Old Testament's most famous villains, Ahab. King Ahab was a horribly wicked king. However, in the later stages of his life, he actually reformed and repented. However, that did not mean that he was free from the consequences of a life of sin. Those things were not removed from him. And in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 20, we hear the Lord speak about Ahab, and in particular speak about his upcoming death at a particular upcoming battle. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall, or that means die, at Ramoth Gilead? Jump down a little bit to verses 31 through 34. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. He just chased the wrong dude. And then he gave up. And he turned around and just in frustration pulled back his bow, shot it into the air at no one in particular. The arrow goes up and lands on the one guy that they were actually hunting down. 
that is an incredible thing that from our perspective and from their perspective looks like random chance. It appears to be lucky. But know that God had already foretold in that very chapter that at that very day, in that very battle, the king Ahab would be killed. He would fall. Although it seemed random to everyone on the battlefield, it was a perfectly orchestrated event placed by God to fulfill both his prophecy and his purposes. Well, let's ask, are God's plans changeable then? Well, Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 tells us that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If all the armies and all the earth and heaven join together to arm wrestle God, they would not even register on his scale. They would be so outmatched that their combined might would not even register against his power. Nobody can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can change his plans or his purposes because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. When Paul was writing about God's grand plan of salvation, he sometimes would break into these melodious times of praise and worship in the middle of his epistles. And one of those events is found in Romans eleven thirty three through 36 when he just can't go any farther without worshiping and says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now there are three main takeaways that I want you to have from this sermon. First, it is really easy for us to shrink God in our minds. It's literally impossible for you to think of him as greater or more powerful or more in control than he actually is. All we can do is make him smaller in our minds. We can't make the mistake of overestimating him. Our only possible mistake is to consider him weaker and less involved in, his li in our lives than he actually is. And we make that mistake all the time. Brothers and sisters, consider the word of God and consider that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And that means he does whatever he pleases in everything you see around you every day. In the circumstances that you encounter, he is controlling them. In the challenges that we see, in the national environment that we see, in the politics that we observe and take part in, you must understand that those things are not outside the realm of his control. The heart of the king is like a river in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. You need to know that God is big. And that might sound really simple. That might sound like children's church material, but I need to preach it because we forget and because we make God smaller in our mind. The second thing I want you to take away is that if you really believe that God does control all of these things, don't you think you can trust him? If you feel like your life is out of control, then you're just coming to terms with the fact that your life was never in your control for even a second. You have always been at the mercy of others. In particular, you have always been at the mercy of God himself. 
just like that crazy man in the grocery store who was throwing the watermelons, you cannot do whatever you want. You are limited by so many factors that are too numerous to even count. But God is not limited. And God can do whatever he wants. And if you are in Christ, you need to know he is on your side. If God be for us, who can stand against? If you really believe that God controls all events, both good and bad, can't you believe that he is working all of these things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes? You see, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. But Isaiah tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush him, speaking of Christ. He has put him to grief. It pleased the Father to crucify the Son in order to bring about salvation for his people. He does whatever he pleases. What does he please to do? He pleased to save us through the death of his own Son. The gospel was not a game-time decision by God. It was always God, God's purpose and his plan to save his people through the death of Christ. Romans 8.32 explains it this way. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Arguing from the lesser to the greater. The Lord is saying, look, I already gave you Jesus. I can't give you anything better. And if I've already given you the most costly, price, precious, pricely thing in the universe, can you not just trust that I will do what's good for you? The fact that God is sovereign means that you can trust him. Now lastly and thirdly, our, our final thing I want you to take away this morning is this. You might have noticed that at the outset I said we were going to spend six weeks studying salvation. And up to this point, I haven't really talked at all about salvation. But the reason we started here with God is because I want to make sure we're on the same page about who God is. I want to make sure that we all agree that God rules over the animals and the planets and that he is sovereign over angels and demons and that he controls even the microscopic elements of our world to such a degree that there is nothing that he has not ordained and set in place. There is no luck or chance. The problem is that there are many Christians who would agree with everything that I have preached so far this morning but would not be willing to agree with the final point that I'm about to make. And I'm curious, does anyone still have their finger in Jonah chapter 2? If you do, look at it there, verse 9. In the midst of his suffering inside of the whale, Jonah is praying. And there, nestled in the middle of that prayer, nestled in the middle of verse 9, you see a phrase that is five words long. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The final question of the day is who is sovereign over salvation? Is it by the will of God or by the will of man that salvation is ultimately achieved? Does God ordain salvation like he ordains the rotation of the planets? Does he choose his people like he chooses the outcome of the roll of the die? Does he have the power over spiritual life and death like he has power over physical life and death? Well, Jonah says that salvation belongs to the Lord. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We begin our study of salvation with the study of God because that's where salvation originates. Your salvation from beginning to end is carried out by God himself. Your salvation is accomplished and held fast by the author and perfecter of your faith. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation 
And over the next five Sundays, we're going to see exactly what the scripture has to say about that. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are in the heavens and that you do whatever you please. God, we thank you that you are ruling and reigning sovereignly and supremely over even the minuscule things that we observe as simple and unimportant. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all of the things that we have seen today. And in particular, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over salvation. And we pray, God, that you would help us today to love you more and to trust you more and to follow you more closely and to observe you better because we see that you are a big God who is sovereign over all things. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.